Hello and welcome to Pieces of History with me, Colin McGrath. Alex returned for part three of the story of 1066. I hope you enjoy. So just a recap on last time, we kind of finished off, was it 1050s or so? That's right, yeah. We finished off in the, uh, well, we we spoke about the, the, the sort of big crisis of Edward the Confessor's reign, which was the uh, crisis of 1051-52, where um, things sort of boiled to a head and uh, Earl Godwinner and his family are outlawed and exiled from England. Uh, in September of 1051, but then they're able to come back. They, they sort of force their way back into English politics a year later in 1052, and they come to terms with Edward. Um, do you remember broadly us talking about that? Yeah, I do. Um, so there was uh, so the Goblins came back. Uh, Queen Edith was back as well yep. because she was exiled. That's right. She came back. And obviously, yeah, so they're all re- they're all restored to their former position. So, so uh, Godwinner is restor- restored to the earldom of Wessex. Um, Harold, his son, is restored to his earldom as well. And uh, Edith, who had been sort of shipped off to a nunnery, bless her, uh, mm-hmm. was restored to the court and and importantly the bedchamber as queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the sort of uh, someone who is seen as as a rival to the Godwinsons. Uh, Archbishop Robert, who's uh, the Norman friend of Edward the Confessor, he, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is then outlawed and deposed from his archbishopric, and he flees into exile, going to Normandy, possibly taking the two the two Godwinson hostages, um, Wolfnoth, who's who's a, a son of Earl Godwin, and uh, Hakon who's who's a um a grandson of of Earl Godwin. So he pro- he possibly takes those two off to Normandy with him as he as he as he runs away into exile, he spirits them away. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we'll probably get into it, but how pivotal was that moment then with the archbishop essentially kicked out? Was that that play a major part or um I mean, yeah, it, it's certainly a, it's certainly a uh, a big comeback for for Godwin and his family. It's not to say it's unheard of. You know, um, people go into exile uh, in the Middle Ages quite often, and they're 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 usually able to make a comeback at some point or or another. Um, but the but particularly the Archbishop, you know, being deposed and outlawed is certainly unusual. You know, normally these guys and Robert is not able to make a comeback. Um, I should say that. You know, Robert does not return to England. He is he is outlawed. He's deposed, and a new archbishop is appointed in his place. A chap called Stigand, who had basically served to to mediate between Edward and um, the family of Earl Godwinner when 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 they come back. So he sort mm-hmm. of rewarded, if you like. He's he does very well out of ten fifty two. So post ten fifty two, then. Um... What is the reign of Edward like for over the next number of years? Then is it stable, or is he is he looking over his shoulder over the channel, so to speak? Well, it's sort of yeah. It's I would say perhaps the most interesting stuff, really, and and and, and in many ways the most puzzling. A year after the God, after the Godwinsons come back, uh, Earl Godwinner himself dies in 1053, and uh, Harold uh, then succeeds to to the earldom of Wessex. You know, probably the most important, the most powerful earldom in England. And at at this point in time, you know, H- Harold is the only Godwinson with an earldom. 
all the other earldoms, you know, Mercia, Northumbria, East Anglia, that they're in the hands of other families. And, and there's quite a good balance of power. And with the death of Godwinner, we can see that things are beginning to look up for Edward, right? And, it, and in 1054, he sends one of his bishops, Bishop Ealdred uh, of Worcester, on, on, a, on an embassy mission to the Holy Roman Empire, perhaps the most important uh, political entity in, in Western Christendom, um, to sort of, you know, have a chat, but also perhaps learn some things about how to best um, ordain a king. You know, so he comes back with, with, with a great box of tricks about how to do coronation orders and things. If you want to be like the emperor, you know, this is how you do it. But also, he goes in part to negotiate for the return from exile of Edward the Confessor's nephew, a chap confusingly also called Edward, but we'll call him Edward the Exile. Now, if you remember, I think way back, possibly in episode one or two, I can't remember, but we had Edward's father, King Athelred, and one of his older sons, Edmund Ironside, there fighting the Vikings, if you remember, in the early 11th Mm -hmm. century. And while Edward and his brother Alfred are sent off to exile in Normandy, Edward's nephew, so the so the the children of Edmund Ironside, end up in exile in Hungary, all the way across the other side of Europe. And it's in 1054 when Edward the Confessor says, "Oh, you know, let's see if we can get them back." The timing of this cannot be coincidental, right? It, he does it, you know, perhaps perhaps he only heard that they were alive in 1054, but. I think it's an interesting possibility that he was he only felt felt able to do this after after perhaps Godwinner had been uh, after Godwinner had died. Just actually a, a bit of a admin question for you, Alex. Whenever sure. we come up, whenever whenever we have these names, you know, Edward the Confessor and um, Edward the Exile, were they given at the time, or or did academics give those? You know, twentieth century, nineteenth century, obviously. Obviously, it's possibly a silly question, but it's, it's one of those questions I've always no, no. wanted to ask. It's, I mean, it's sort of a mixture of both. I mean, um, uh, you know, I think as I, as I explained previously, William, uh, Duke of Normandy, is is called the bastard in his lifetime by his by his opponents. Uh, but sometimes some of these monikers are given by historians. Um, you know, sometimes near contemporaries. Uh, in order to distinguish them from lots of people, because there are lots of people with the same name, um, uh, and so yeah, it's you know sometimes they're known as these things during their lifetimes, but but I think in the case of in the case of Edward the Confessor and Edward the Exile, they they will be later constructions, mm-hmm. basically to help us um, and to help uh, and to help other previous historians figure out who we're actually talking about here. Whenever Edward the Exile comes back to England, then it's roughly around ten fifty-seven or so. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, but but by that time, but by the time Edward the Exile manages to make it make his way back to England, um, it looks quite different to how it did in ten fifty-three, ten fifty-four, because by ten fifty-seven. 58 it's it seems to be very much dominated by the godwinsons and from the mid 1050s onward um edward basically seems to give all of the top positions all of the earldoms that come up 
he gives them all to other sons of of, of Godwin. So uh, there's a famous case in 1155. Um, uh, Seward, the great Earl of Northumbria, he dies, and his and his son Waltheof is is deemed to be too young to succeed him to this title. Right. So Edward gives it to Tostig, um, Harold's younger brother, and uh, Alfgar, the Earl of Mercia who is from this rival family um, to uh, to the Godwinsons, he goes absolutely ballistic. You know, he can't believe that the confessor has, has done this. Uh, he's, got, he's got the perfect opportunity to keep the balance of power nicely between the different families. But, you know, and Godwin's dead, of course, so, so there's, no, there's no chance that this is being forced upon him by, by this... Um, by Earl Godwinner, who possibly had been able to exert that level of influence during his lifetime, and, and yet he, you know, he gives it to Tostig. Alfgar goes ballistic. What? I can't believe you've done this, you know. And and, and he runs off to Wales, and 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 uh, he he's outlawed, and he has a, he has a bit of a scrap with uh, with the English royal forces near Hereford. Eventually, he's restored to power. You know, it's not a major crisis. Um, but you know, over the following years, more of Godwinner's sons get earldoms. Leofwinner and Gerth are assigned the earldoms um, of um, East Anglia and and another one in in the sort of southeast southeast Midlands. And again, you know, Alfgar can't believe it. He's like, "What are you doing?" To, you know, and he and again he goes ballistic, and again he's outlawed and and, and is a, is able to come back w- with the help of of the Welsh. Mm-hmm. So we're left sort of asking, well, well, why does this happen, right? Why does Edward the Confessor, from the moment when he's seemingly free from from Earl Godwin's influence, he he, why does he give all these positions to the, uh, his sons? And I guess you can boil it down to two possibilities. One is that the Godwinsons are essentially in control, and that Edward is sort of their puppet, and you know their power's too great for him. To resist, and he's basically forced to give them these top positions, or that Edward has agency here and gave them the positions because he actually got on with them and and possibly even liked them. Uh, I think I'm leaning more to the latter, to be honest, and I think modern scholarship possibly is too. And it seems that you know, even though his relationship with Godwinner himself may have been tricky because of Godwin's possible involvement in his brother's death, after 1053, there's no indication really that Edward and the Godwinsons, you know, um, have have any beef really, uh, and and the Godwinsons don't really cause any trouble for the king. In fact, they prove very reliable servants um, to him. You know, Harold leads a load of successful military campaigns against the Welsh on Edward's behalf. Edward himself is not really a warrior king, so Harold does much of the heavy lifting there. So, so yeah, that I think that's what's going on really in, in the 1050s. He's very happy to promote the Godwins because he probably gets on with them and they, and they help him, you know, shore up his rule. Yeah, of course. And it's, it's probably a relationship of convenience as well. Like you said, it's he obviously depends on them. They depend on him to keep to yeah. keep the status to keep the status quo. So, so why yeah. would you rock the boat? You know, just and of course, of- you know, y- you can argue that the more he promotes the Godwinsons over the other families and sort of tips the balance of power, 
you know, you can say, well, well, there's a criticism there because a good king should should balance the sort of factional forces in his court, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why we see it. That's why I think we see Alfgar, the Earl of Mercia, going ballistic uh, every time you know another Godwins another Godwinson gets an earldom. Yeah, you can see. I can I can see his point too as well because personally, <laughs> you'd be very upset as well. Um, yeah. So then, if if we roll in Alex to the ten sixties, then because we've still got quite a bit to cover, yes. um, where is Edward sitting at this point within his monarchy? Um, also, as well, if we can kind of dip back across the water, what's William up to at this point? Sure. Yeah. So, um, just um, well, it, actually, going back to first Edward, Edward the Exile, uh, sort of in, in one of the great mysterious turns of this story, when he does arrive in England in the late 1050s with his wife and children, he he actually dies. And literally within a few days of arriving in England, he dies. He never meets his uncle, King Edward the Confessor. And in you know, we're sort of left with the fact that he's dead and we don't really know what happened there. He's travelled a long way across Europe, probably an arduous journey. Did he die of natural causes? Was he murdered? Mm. Who knows? There's no indication from the evidence that he was murdered. Um, but, you know, it does seem to be a little strange that perhaps the one guy who can succeed Edward as the most obvious choice, you know, that this guy is is an atheling. He's a direct descendant um, of King Athelred and, and indeed going all the way back to King Alfred in the male line. He makes this arduous journey from Hungary. He turns up in England. A few days later, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are left guessing. I think it would be irresponsible of me to say, you know, he was probably offed by someone. It certainly wasn't. That allegation certainly wasn't made at the time, but mm-hmm. it does seem quite strange. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's that. There's that to consider. But otherwise, Edward Edward's position is pretty okay in 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 the 1060s you know he's getting old everyone knows now really he's not going to have a child you know he's been he's been married to edith um for over 20 years by 1066 and it doesn't seem to be uh, any kids coming so we can pretty much guess that everyone is aware that you know when the king pops his clogs we're going to be in uncharted territory here um the, the only hope of 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 um a legitimate successor really died with Edward the Exile, um, who does leave a young son, I should say, um uh, uh who's called Edgar. And we call him Edgar the Atheling, Prince Prince Edgar. Mm-hmm. Um he's also a legitimate, you know, claimant to the throne, but he's very, very young in in ten sixty six. Um so yeah, there, there's that. So then in 1066, Edward does indeed pop his clogs, and he does. We and we have a crisis. <laughs> yeah, that's, abs- that's absolutely right. We have this crisis, um, and um, as I think I said at the very beginning, when I summarised what what ends up happening is that um, uh, you know the the day after uh, Edward dies on the day of his funeral. The the Witan, which is basically the the sort of great council of the realm, or all the nobles come together, and they are charged with uh, electing the new king, effectively. 
and they they choose to go with Harold. It's hard to really imagine what else they could have done, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, Harold is not an atheling. He is not a legitimate uh, candidate for the throne. He's not a male descendant of a king. His only relationship to the royal line is the fact that his sister was married. So he's you know he's the king's brother-in-law, but there's no blood. Um, not least you know the, you know he's not he's not even related to Edward by blood, let alone uh, by by the male line. However. He's proved himself as a good governor, uh, as Earl of Wessex. He's proved himself as a good military campaigner. And, you know, he's also got a, got a packed room, really, when it comes to the electors, right? Most of virtually all of his brothers have earldoms um, in England as well. So it's, it's sort of unsurprising that he would be elected. Mm-hmm. Um, there are sort of, there are two caveats to this, however. Well, actually, three. Uh, one is that I think it's likely, although it is debated, that in around 1064, 1065, Harold makes a trip to Normandy. And he ends up swearing this oath to William. And the Normans say that he swears this oath that he will, that he will you know, um, make sure that William becomes the next King of England after Edward the Confessor dies. This moment is famously depicted in the in the in the Bayeux Tapestry. Have you have you uh, come across this? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you know, as I say, some people doubt that he went to Normandy, um, and they characterise this trip as a sort of Norman invention, right? Uh, in order in order to sort of lay lay the foundations of the Norman claim. You know, Harold promised William that he would help him become king, and and yet he broke that oath. He's a perjurer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can sort of see why, right? Because why on earth would Harold do this? In, in the late 1060s, he's in a very unassailable position in England, very, very powerful. He's got all his brothers there with earldoms themselves. All he has to do is wait out the clock, you know, <laughs> And then, he, and then, when Edward dies, he can get the throne as as he did. So, why on earth would he make this trip to Normandy? And I think an interesting answer is is provided by uh, a, a historian writing in the early twelfth century, so near contemporary, uh, called the Admir of Canterbury, and he said that Harold goes to Normandy in this period to try to rescue his brother and nephew, those two Godwinson hostages that I spoke about earlier. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the, um, with, the, uh, with the bishop. Sorry, the bishop right. possibly yeah, spurred them away, yeah. Yeah, so they end up, I mean, it's almost for certain, you know, that they end up in the custody of William, uh, of Duke William. And so, you know, does he possibly go to, to try and get them back? Um, and, and, you know, I think that's an interesting suggestion. Um. And 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 you know the story is that he crosses the channel, uh, he, he he gets shipwrecked actually, and ends up in Ponthieu, which is Normandy's neighbour, and he ends up being delivered to William almost as a hostage, really. Mm-hmm. And and you know the, the he, I, I think I think a good reconstruction is that he's in a bit of a sticky situation. He's basically a hostage in Normandy, and William says, "Well, you know, if you want to make it out with your hostages and go back to England, I'm going to make you swear an oath." And so it's possible that he swears this oath under duress in, in in a sticky wicket to try and get out of the situation. And he does succeed in in getting back to England, 
with one of the hostages, he he, he gets uh, Hakon, his nephew, out, but but his brother, poor old uh, Wolfnoth, remains in cap- in captivity. Mm-hmm. So that's one point. Um, and there's also the point that the Godwinsons are not actually united in 1066 when Edward dies. He's got most of his brothers on side, but um, Tostig, who is the Earl of Northumbria in, in the early 1060s, he is actually uh, outlawed and exiled from England in 1065. The, the Northumbrians rebel against his rule. They don't like him. King Edward, who appears to like Tostig, is very upset by this rebellion, and he and he asks Harold, you know, his sort of chief military uh, attaché, go up to Northumbria, go and help your brother, bring peace to the north, provide assistance to him. And at this point in 1065, Harold says, "No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to help my brother. He's got himself into trouble. He can deal with it." And in this instance, Edward is essentially powerless. You know, but by 1065. It is true to say that he he is powerless to to help Tostig without Harold um, helping him to do that. And so Tostig is basically forced out and he ends up fighting against Harold, his brother, in, in the campaigns of 1066, possibly as a way to try and force his way back in back into England. And it's actually that incident in 1065 that possibly causes Edward to suffer a stroke. You know, the, the, this sort of, the fact that someone he likes is being forced out of England and he's powerless to help him. Uh, it's possible that he suffers a stroke in, in, in late 1065 from which he never recovers and then dies in, in early 1066. And then I think the third final thing is that we do have this young Edgar Atheling, who is, I guess, about 14, 15 uh, at the point of Edward's death. Really, he's the only viable, legitimate candidate for the throne. But I think, um, as I said, the Witan's only real choice, and they are in uncharted territory, is is Harold, because the English nobles know that there are foreign invaders coming. They know that, you know, whoever is going to get this throne, they're going to have to fight to keep it. And they they probably made the decision that they're better off going with Harold, who is much more likely to be able to to defend that throne against the armies of Duke William of Normandy and Harold Hardrada of, mm-hmm. of Norway. William, at this point then, was he, obviously he knew that Edward the Confessor was dead and he pretty much saw an opportunity to go over to England, claim the throne. And was did he get himself prepared? Like how long did it take him? to get prepared to kind of launch the invasion, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, my own view is that William is sort of waiting for this to happen. He know, You know, he, he's monitoring what's going on over the channel and he, you know, he knows that Edward had, has no children, so he's probably getting ready for this a few years prior. William has probably been waiting for this himself. Uh, the, the Norman claim is that... William had been promised the throne several times um, by first by Edward the Confessor and then by Harold who who swears the oath in 1064 or 65 and um, 
it, but it, but it's only when Edward actually dies and Harold is crowned king that that William starts to make the preparations for the invasion in earnest. And so, from from January um, onwards, in ten sixty six, that's when he's making sure he's got all his men. He, you know, he's he's probably going around um, campaigning, uh, not just in Normandy but among Normandy's neighbours. Basically saying, "Will you come and fight with me?" Uh, possibly offering lots of land um, as a reward if they do come as a sort of investment. You know, uh, you know, um, get your sword, get your armor, come with me, bring your men. If we do this, there'll be huge payoffs for you. You know, mm. and uh, he starts to build the fleet, um, which is depicted in the Bayeux Tapestry. They also bring lots of supplies, including wine, which I think is a, a brilliant, uh, a brilliant scene that they actually decided to put in the tapestry. Make sure that you know you show us putting the wine on board the ships for, for our feast uh, when we arrive in England. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's it's this sort of by the summer by the summer of ten sixty six, William is ready to cross the Channel before he does. The, all the preparation work, did he have to go and ask permission from the King of France to do this or did he do it off his own bat? Not, no. So he, he doesn't have to go and ask permission from, from the King of France. Um, he, he is his nominal Lord and King, um, but that's what it is. It's sort of nominal. Um, mm. and, and, the, and the crown authority in France is so low that, that William can, can largely do what he wants, even if he has to sort of acknowledge that he holds his land at the at the pleasure of the king, but that's not in practice. That's not really the case, and so he he does. You know, there are suggestions that he goes to the pope and and gets sort of papal blessing for for his invasion of England, and um, it seems that the pope does does give his blessing for this, possibly as a way to restore um, a bit of order to to the Anglo Saxon Church, which. By 1066 is is seen as a bit dodgy, not least because um, when Archbishop Robert is forced into exile, his successor Stigand is a bit toxic, and uh, he holds lots of he, well, he holds not only the Archbishop of Canterbury but also the Bishopric of Winchester, the two wealthiest sees in England, um, in in plurality, which isn't doesn't really look good. He, he's very good with money, is Stigand. Um, and bishops, you know, bishops should not be that worldly. They're supposed to be uh, men of God, uh, not not men of the world. And of course, also his predecessor is still alive, right? Um, Robert of Jumiege uh, has not died, and so he is really still the bishop, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. But he's been, but he's been forced out. Um, and so, and so, you, you can see uh, that the Pope would would indeed give his blessing to to William. Um, so I suppose if we kind of go to uh, the summer period of 1066, so we're we're, re- yeah. we're ready to kind of essentially get into it then. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. I think we should so, try and get to the end of 1066 before, you know, and that should be a good finish for us, I think. Yeah. Um, so obviously summer season is campaign season. Mm, and when, yeah. so, so when does it really kick off? So as I said, yeah. So so William, you know, William's preparing his his invasion fleet, and he's and he's probably ready by the summer. As I think we said in at the end of the f- the first episode, where he's waiting. We have this scene uh, in the Norman sources where he's waiting on the coast of Normandy for the winds to change. 
you know, he's ready to go, but there are unfavorable winds keeping the fleet in port. He can't get out the harbor. So he waits and waits and waits. Across the channel, Harold's also waiting on the south coast, right? He he's he knows that that William is coming. And he, he calls up his army, he assembles his army on the south coast, and he waits and waits, but the attack never comes. And eventually he disbands the the militia, the Anglo-Saxon militia, who uh, who have to go back to their estates for the harvest, right? So we're in sort of September time. Because all you know, most of the rank and file of the armies are essentially farmers. They're they you know they're not professional soldiers, so they wait so long that by September the attack hasn't come. They all go back off to collect their harvest, and the first attack actually comes from Harold Hardrada, who in mid September, while Harold is sort of waiting in the south for William, Harold Hardrada in mid September arrives in the Humber invades northern England with a few hundred ships and marches on York, which is the most important city, you know, in the north of England. And he links up with Tostig. Do you remember Tostig, who's been exiled mm-hmm. a year before? Mm-hmm. He He's going to help Harold Hardrada fight his brother uh, because he wants to be restored, you know, to, to position in England. So he links up with him and... and, and um, the local earls, Earls Edwin and Morcar, the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, respectively, these guys sort of raise the local levies in the Midlands and the north to fight against this Viking invasion. And and the two armies meet just outside of York on the 20th of September at the Battle of Fulford Gate. And, and Harold Hardrada and Tostig, they, they defeat Edwin and Morcar. They're able to escape with their lives. You know, it's not a massacre. It's not a decisive victory for the Vikings, but they're left licking their wounds. Mm-hmm. Now, you may ask, why are Edwin and Morka fighting for Harold, their, um, their sort of rival before 1066? Well, it's possible that they're actually just defending their local areas, you know, from, from a Viking uh, invasion. But also, Harold has tried to um, build a bridge between his family and 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 the Mercians by marrying Edwin and Morcar's sister Ealdgith, so she she becomes Harold Harold's queen. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that they do have some sort of vested, you know, stake in 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 helping Harold here. But they are defeated, and when Harold Godwinson hears of this, he's in the south and thinks, ah, he, he you know he 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 abandons the south coast immediately. He marches he marches up north so quickly. That you know he's able to do it in 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 a few days basically, and um, he's able to surprise the Norwegian army, uh, who are essentially still in bed uh, in their camp when 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 Harold Godwinson's army arrives, and he utterly wipes them out in in in, in truly a brilliant you know tactical display um, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge on, on the twenty fifth of September, and in that battle Harold Hardrada is killed, and so is. Uh, Tostig, Harold's brother, they're both killed in battle. Es- essentially, obviously, they have to go and to retreat. So I was doing some research as well, and so of the invasion fleet, how, how many escaped alive? Not many at all, actually. I-, I think only isn't it like a few ships make it back to to to, to Norway? Um, sorry, yeah. that's just my. I think it's only a few ships that make it back to Norway. Yeah. Obviously, we've got to be careful with with numbers here and and, mm. and medieval 
medieval historians are famously bad at uh, gauging numbers. But yeah, I think I think we can safely say that he does come with a fleet of a few hundred ships. The, the you know the the defeat at Stamford Bridge for 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 the Norwegians is is um, a crushing one, and so it, it seems very understandable that only that only you know a few score of those yeah. ships make it back. So it's a, it's essentially a rout, pretty much. They're they're absolutely oh, devastated. Yeah. Brilliant victory for, for for Harold Godwinson. So obviously Harold's thinking to himself, right? I've kind of I've, I've sorted the north. I take it he goes back down south, waiting for the arrival of William. Yes, well, uh, a couple of days after Stamford Bridge, well, while Harold uh, King Harold Godwinson is still up north, what do you know? The winds over the English Channel change. And William, Duke William, is able to cross with his fleet and land safely on England's south coast. Now, the Norman sources portrayed this as essentially divine intervention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God God changed the winds so that William was able to cross. Oh, and it just so happens that Harold's army is no longer there waiting for him. It's all, you know, a few hundred miles away up, up in Yorkshire. It, it's possible that, that indeed it was just luck. But I think it's also an interesting possibility that that Duke William uh, had spies and knew when was a good time to cross. It was a perfect I mean, time to cross. <laughs> really? Yeah, we don't have any we don't have any direct evidence that spies told him that it, it you know it was safe to cross. And it, and indeed, it makes for a much better story that you know he's waiting on the coast for the winds and God changes the winds at the right moment and it's all it's all divine. Um, mandate, and it all works out well because God's on William's side. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. But it's also possible that some of the Normans in southern England, such as Osborne, who's based in in Bosham on the south coast, not far from Hastings, actually. You know, uh, his his brother Osborne's brother is William the, William the Conqueror's best friend, and he's in England. And William the Conqueror's best friend, William Fitz Osborne, is there in Normandy with the invasion army. Are they talking to each other? I mean, it's mm. it's possible. It's even probable, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, of, co- of course, yeah. And then, so he arrives late September. So when, and you've just mentioned it there, when does the Battle of Hastings take place? So the Battle of Hastings takes place on the 14th of October. Um, and uh, so, so William spends a, a couple of weeks, really, in, in, in the south of England, uh, before before that battle takes place, as soon as Harold hears that William has has made the crossing, he marches back down south very very quickly. He makes it to London within a few days, and here he's got a decision to make: does he stay in London, or does he go out to meet William in battle? Supposedly, his brother uh, Gerth, Earl Gerth, he says, "Stay here." Stay put, you know, stay in London. We're safe here. There's no need to go and rush to meet William in battle. You know, he's an invading art. He's, he's an in, in invading um, claimant to the throne. He's got to, you know, the the job is, is his, really. If he wants to conquer this land, come and conquer it. But Harold doesn't do that. Uh, after waiting in London just under a week, he he leaves the city and marches south towards towards the Norman army who are encamped at Hastings, uh, very close to the coast, you know, very close to their supply lines. Uh, William stays in Hastings. He, he builds a castle. Um, the first thing he does, really, when he gets 
to England. He builds uh, a, a, a sort of quick and easy IKEA flat pack kind of castle, <laughs> which which forms his HQ, and he stays there. He ravages the local countryside to keep his army, you know, supplied, um, and and and, and uh, sort of amused, if you like. Um, and Harold comes to him. And historians have sort of argued about this and tried to think, well, why on earth does he do this? He, you know, in hindsight, he should have just stayed because William, William needs that one decisive battle, and Harold gives it to him, um, and you know, it's seen as a sort of great mistake. I mean, uh, trying to get into the mindset of Harold, you know, why would he do this? Why would he not just stay in London? I think he he is trying to possibly repeat his success. Um, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, you know, if he can surprise William in camp, uh, then he can perhaps, you know, wipe them out decisively, like like he did with the Vikings. Maybe, maybe that's on his mind. But also, you know, he knows that his tenure on the throne of England isn't that um, stable. You know, it's it's not his, his claim is not that strong. And while William still lives, the longer he's in England. Um, the more likely it is that some may flock to his cause, and and, and you know the, the the longer this sort of succession war goes on, um, the the more unstable and untenable his position uh, as king becomes. So I'm guessing that 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 weighed on his mind quite heavily, and and that might help us explain why he decides. You know what? I'm going to go and fight this guy because if I mm-hmm. kill him at Hastings, my troubles are basically over. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you can see because you can see why he's possibly buoyant from the victory at Stamford Bridge. And he, like you've just said, he's thought, "I'll go down here, I'll get a quick victory, and then it's it's done by the end of the year." Because we're talking what mid October anyway, and the longer it drags on, the longer and longer, and possibly he could have been worried about maybe others with within his own kingdom realizing yeah. that William is there. They William might get allies himself. He might use his spies and. He might gather a larger force as well, so he's he's essentially striking where the iron's hot. I I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, um, and you know, you've also got the the, the quite recent memory of the conquest of uh, of the early eleventh century in ten thirteen ten sixteen, when Athelred is fighting a long and drawn out campaign against the Vikings, um, and uh, that ends up with him having to go into exile and, and the Vikings, you know, b- b- becoming kings, uh, Swain and Canute. So, you know, that's probably playing on his mind. He thinks, well, if I can kill this guy, um, that's it. You know, his claim is out and, and, and I can settle down. So if we, if we do a very quick whistle-stop tour of the actual battle itself, Alex, what, 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 are, the key, what, what are the key things that happened that day? So the battle... Um, uh, uh, Harold, you know, if he if he did try to surprise William, it doesn't work. Um, William's spies actually spot the, the English army coming, and we can see that in the Bayeux Tapestry as well. So uh, he's not able to catch uh, William unawares. Instead, he sets up his army on top of uh, a hill, Senlac Hill, uh, at a place now called Battle, which is about 10 kilometres north of Hastings. And he sets up his army there in the form of a shield wall, blocking the you know the road to london you know william cannot advance really um he has to he has to fight harold um and and uh, as i said the, the english army is essentially composed of a shield wall of foot soldiers the anglo-saxons 
do not fight on horseback. They they do have horses and they use horses to travel, but they don't fight on horses. They fight on foot and they they use the shield wall and they're armed on on the one on the one hand with a shield, and the other with a, with a spear or or or, or, a, or a sword. And they form that they put the shields together and form you know what is supposed to be an, a, an impenetrable wall. Um, the Normans have a slightly different uh, makeup. The, the, the Norman army consists of three ranks. The first are sort of missile troops armed with, you know, uh, bows, arrows, perhaps some, perhaps some early crossbows as well in this period. The second rank are the, are the foot soldiers, the, the infantrymen, very much uh, armed exactly like the Anglo-Saxons were, spears and sword on the one hand and, and a shield in the other. And then you've got your um, perhaps the sort of battle tank of the Middle Ages, if you like, which is the mounted knight. The Normans do know how to fight on horseback. They've been doing it for a while in France. And so this third rank of mounted knights, uh, and, and that's where we'll find William himself and all the, and all the great you know Norman lords, um, probably kitted out with a lance, which can be held in a sort of couch, like under the arm kind of thing, or you can you can hold it above above your shoulder and, and sort of you know stab or throw like, like a like a missile spear, mm-hmm. um, and and that sort of heterogeneous um, Norman force ends up uh, as the as as the, as the victors. However, it is a very close battle. It lasts all day, which is quite unusual for for, for medieval battles like this. And the Normans, try as they might, were initially unable to penetrate the English shield wall. First, they send in the, the you know the archers and the missile troops, but the shield wall prevents uh, m- many missiles from inflicting any casualties. Then they send in the infantry, and they just get sort of bogged down as well. They even try repeated cavalry charges, but when the horse is charging up a hill, they sort of lose a bit of momentum, right? And so it doesn't really have that shock factor that it would have on 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 a flat plain and in the end it's only after the repeated cavalry charges and possibly this is up for debate but possibly by employing the tactic of the feigned retreat that that they that the normans were able to break the the the, the shield wall and once the shield wall breaks that's it really for the english um, mm-hmm. uh, Harold and, and all his brothers were also killed as well. I suppose that battle, the Battle of Hastings itself, could be broken down into many episodes as well. As well, because obviously you've you've narrowed it down within four or five minutes, but it's yes. obviously such yeah, that's very difficult to do. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's such a it's such a pivotal day really in English history because, like you said, it was such a narrow battle as well. It could have went either way, and if it did go Harold's way, you know the. United Kingdom or whatever England would look very oh God, yeah, dif- different today. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. And I mean, you know, fair play to the English here. They, the, you know, the the, Engl- the Anglo-Saxon state is able to fight three battles, three major battles in 1066, mm. um, and and you know, it, it wins one of them pretty decisively, and then only a few weeks later, it's it's defeated pretty narrowly. Really, I mean the 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 victory for William is is decisive uh, strategically, 
but for most of the day, you know, the battle could have the battle could have gone either way. Um, and even though the English tactic of the shield wall is quite, you know, it's fairly unsophisticated, and and the Normans have got all sorts of different troops and different tactics going on. Actually, it works quite well for most of the day, and it's only possibly when the Normans are able to to entice the shield wall to break by possibly pretending to retreat. Uh, for what it's worth, I think the Normans were able to do this. I think they were able to to feign retreat, sort of pretending to run away. And when when the Anglo-Saxons then chase them down the hill, Harold loses all control of the shield wall and the and the cavalry, the Norman cavalry can just, you know, um about turn and say, right, lads, you know, the shield wall's broken. Uh have at it. <laughs> and indeed they do. Hmm. And so just before we finish off then, when was William um, made king? So he is crowned king in Westminster uh, on the 25th of December, 1066. A lovely Christmas present for William. Oh, Um, that's nice. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Once he wins uh, at Hastings, you know, his... It's fairly certain that he's going to be crowned king, or the sort of major opposition to him is now gone. And as he sort of marches slowly towards London, he he goes uh, to to Dover and, and to Canterbury first, and sends off a contingent to Winchester, which is a very important centre. Um, the 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 remaining nobles in London actually crown Edgar Atheling king. Uh, once the news of Harold's death reaches them, but but that proves to be very very short lived indeed. And as soon as William's army uh, gets close to London, they all say, "Oh, sorry, you know, um, we submit, <laughs> we submit, we submit." And 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 mm-hmm. so uh, William is it, it is you know elected by 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 the nobility there and and crowned king on Christmas Day, ten sixty six. I think that's an absolutely perfect way to finish off. Thanks very much, Alex, for this whistle stop tour through Norman history. <laughs> I think we've covered yeah, all the no major worries. points. I'm sure I've forgotten some things, but uh, I no, think no. I'll, you know, broad strokes, it should be all right. Um, just if anyone wants to kind of get in contact with you, are you on Twitter or other various means people can email just if they've any questions or? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, I'm not on Instagram, although my cats are. Uh, I mean, you you've got me, haven't you, Colm, on Twitter? Yeah. I don't actually. I so yeah. yeah. What, am I? Am I? A, I think I might be Darth Diamond actually on Twitter because I'm a big Star Wars fan. But yes, I am on Twitter, and um, my my research page is uh, on the University of Oxford uh, history website as well. Um, so you, you can find me on there if you want to email me. Perfect. That's brilliant. Pieces of history is written and produced by me, Colm McGrath with additional material by Anya McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.